I want you to hear this and I want you to comment on it, but here's what you, you need to hear this first because I want you to know where my head is at. My initial thought wasn't, oh my God, Paul Bergman knows Rob Bell. My thought was, oh my God, Rob Bell knows Paul Bergman. <laughs> and, how, and how effing cool is that that he knows that guy so I, I want you to know where you stand I can't wait to tell him that I'm going to tell him that and now he's never wait. coming on the show okay good Western Christianity has spent the last 2000 years telling everyone they're separated from God this is not church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. This is uh, Nat Turney, and my brother John is with me as always. And uh, our guest today is a remarkable human being. And he's, I can already see him in my screen. You can't see him, but I can see him. He's going to blush and flinch every time I say something nice about him. But you know what? Screw it. You're going to have to get used to it. Um, <laughs> Paul is a remarkable, remarkable human being. If you don't know who he is, um, I think by the end of our time together, uh, you'll you'll feel about him like we do. So in the way of a bio, normally we've got somebody on here who, you know, hey, I can say he's a writer and an author and a whatever. And um, I told Paul, I asked him for a for a, a bio and, and I said, otherwise, I'm just going to introduce you as that guy on Facebook. And he seemed to think that was OK. So this is Paul Bergman, <laughs> hashtag that guy on Facebook. Um, <laughs> you might also see him sometimes listed as Pablo, because I think sometimes he gets thrown into Facebook jail. And I'm in <laughs> jail right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And so I invited Paul to be a part of the program, um, partially because I just have always liked him a ton. And even though this is the first time we're actually having a conversation semi-face to face, um, he's another one of those people who I've admired from afar and watched his work. And uh, I just see the way he lives his life genuinely and authentically. But the other reason is I think he's a bit of a bomb thrower and I like that too. Um, I think there's there's a need for folks who are willing to go shake some things up and maybe um, maybe in the in the short term piss some folks off, but also through that process we learn a few things. So that's my way of introduction. My friend Paul, aka Pablo, he'll tell you more <laughs> about himself. I'd like him to tell you about himself in his own words. But welcome to the podcast, my brother Pablo. <laughs> Gentlemen, it is my uh, distinct honor and privilege, uh, but most of all. I, I am just intimidated by your beards because those are beards. I don't have beards. Those are damn beards. So I feel really oh, man. adequate right now. Wow. I want I want to say to your audience. I want to say to your audience right now because this is a, a real potential that because uh, I know a lot of the friends. I dig the, the the site you have on Facebook and I'm digging what's happening there. But there might be a lot of people who go like that asshole. I know that guy. Am I allowed to cuss? I'm sorry. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, You're I mean, encouraged. I wanna, we I, put a dollar in the jar every time you swear. Well, I'm going to be broke. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's just the way it is. But, but yeah, and and you know, there may be maybe guys or people, uh, an audience out there, might be a few who listen to me. Like, did you have really offended me or hurt me? Uh, because I'm not always in the in the best mental health yeah. when I'm reacting, and uh, and and I, I can be very caustic, and I can say things I regret the next day, and I really have a a way to pull it back. But, uh, so I, I want people to know that, that, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, the best intentions and, and oftentimes I, I can be quite abrasive. Uh, but that has a lot to do with my story, where I am, what I've been through. Yeah, for and, sure. And, and the state of mind I'm in. And, uh, but I'm, I'm glad to be here. What can I tell you about me? 
I'll, I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's, let's just start at the beginning. Um, one of the things that, that, you know, that struck me when I first became aware of your presence online was that you were a football player and I'm a football guy, love football. Yeah. And so I was like, Oh, this guy's cool. He played football. Um, so talk us, talk to us about, uh, UCLA. Talk to us about playing yeah, in the pros big, and what big, that was big like. Part of my li- big part of my life. I, uh, my parents were immigrants. I, uh, wasn't born here. My mom, dad, and sister immigrated here. And, and, and I'm starting to understand right now at 60 what it means to be a first-generation American and how much I got and how much I missed um, in, in, in understanding this country. It's really interesting. It's, it's a continuing growth of, of, of knowledge and absorption. But my parents immigrated here, and I didn't grow up with American sports. I didn't play any organized baseball, basketball, football. So I went out for football uh, in high school in my sophomore year, 10th grade. And I went out as a kicker because I played soccer. That was my background for my parents, right? So I played soccer. And, uh, and then 11th grade, they moved me to linebacker too because I was a big dude. And I was pretty athletic. And, and I became a really good player. And, and uh, Division I schools started to look at me. And then my senior year, I started at linebacker and also at wide receiver. And I was very fortunate because in, it was our senior year. John Elway was my quarterback, the Hall of Famer, uh, Super Bowl champion. Uh, wow. But we were, wow. we were high school seniors, and we Damn. tore it up. We tore it up, and even though I was being recruited as a linebacker, I now his can of film went across the country, and I was on the receiving end. So all of a sudden, I was exposed to all these D one schools, and uh, and I got the choice of where I wanted to go as a wide receiver. I went to UCLA uh, because I grew up in Southern California. My I wanted my folks to be there because football for me was a family affair, and. Uh, and I loved the Rose Bowl. That's where I grew up, you know, watching Rose Bowls on TV and wanted to play and yeah. went to UCLA and ended up uh, having that realization. It was a hard road. My first three years, I didn't touch the field, but had a redshirt year. My fourth and fifth year, back-to-back Rose Bowl championships and I uh, left an All-American and with all the tight end receiving records, got drafted, went on to play a, a typically brief four-year pro career in the USFL and NFL. And ironically, it was those years that got me into ministry because uh, I was in church growing up at all. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> I had a uh, really wonderful, I had great parents. And my, uh, my mom was she's very spiritual, but she had a, a language barrier. She never had a driver's license. She barely ventured out of the home. She was old school immigrant woman living for dad and the family. And, uh, but she had a faith and, and, and she instilled that and she had a grace that was just amazing, just an amazing, gracious woman. And she had this simple faith in Jesus. She couldn't give you any doctrines or anything else, but she had this understanding at the simplest form that Jesus was all about love and literally loving your neighbor as yourself and that God was good and benevolent. And she lived that out and I was raised that way. And I had a great sensitivity to the environment. I loved the outdoors and camping. And I was generally raised by great parents. My dad was an agnostic, uh, but much more towards an Eastern bent of religions growing up in the far, far East Asia where my parents both grew up. And, uh, and, and I had this really cool upbringing that got completely derailed when I became a Christian. And, uh, and, and football played a part in that because it was the NFL, USFL chaplain, uh, Sunday chaplaincy programs that actually got me. I started going to chapel on Sundays. And, uh, and, and that's where I, I ended up getting in touch with these people that drew me into ministry. 
so yeah, so my wife and I, we meet and at UCLA, we get married and uh, I play four years of pro ball. Uh, Kathy's parents are <laughs> wonderful. All our parents are passed away. So, uh, but we, uh, I, I love them dearly. And when I married Kathy, I thought I was marrying into money. Like her, <laughs> like her mom and dad had this unbelievable. <laughs> now, the first time I met her parents, it was at their house. It was on this, on La Costa golf course in Carlsbad, California. It was his freaking mansion. And he had this killer blue jag and they had a house in the mountains and he was a pilot. And, and I was just like, fuck, I am set. You wow. know, this is unbelievable. Uh, but it, was, <laughs> it was all a house of cards. As soon as, we got, as soon as we got married, her dad lost it all. I mean, the whole thing collapsed. And we were newlyweds. Oh, man. They lost their house and they moved in with us. And I was like, fuck, what the hell? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I said, but you know what? Oh, it, man, it, that's a bait. It, it was yeah. crazy. They lived with us during their recovery of years, trying to get back on their feet. And, uh, and we, yeah, oh my God, it was, a, it was awesome because most people would say, wait, your in-laws moved in with you right off the bat. And I was like, yep. And, but we, we literally wept for joy for them, but also because we would miss them when they got back on their feet and they were able to get their own place again. But during that period, Kathy's dad had uh, he, you know, he was rich, wealthy, had all these friends. He lost them all when he went broke typically. And, uh, and then he had this born again experience in church late in his life. And that filtered over onto us. You know, he kept inviting us to go to church. And so we started to go to church and, and I liked it. I mean, there was great people there. I had no idea what it was. It was a community church. It sounded safe, but it was a five point Calvinist church, right? So, oh, wow. <laughs> and, and there's, Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So, so that was my, that was where I started to cut my teeth, cut my teeth on, on Calvinistic theology. Right. And son, and he was a Sunday school teacher. And, and, uh, so now I'm playing pro football and I'm going to the chapel program. My career ends. And, uh, all of a sudden this, I'm looking for work. What am I going to do next? And this guy calls me from a chapel program that I attended and I chatted with the guy and, he was with this uh, evangelical ministry called Sports World, and they they well they used professional football players as a platform to speak to people and to kids across the country, and it sounded great. So they, he said, yeah. "Come on out and you know, you know, come out and see what we do. We got a convention, and it was at Dr. Charles Stanley's church in Atlanta." And uh, I oh, went wow. out there. It was, like, it was okay. a, like a week-long thing where I went out there, and man, I I stepped into immersion in the classic, you know, '80s event fundamentalist evangelical political arena, and I got intoxicated by it. I mean, I stepped into this thing. When I left at the end of the week, I came home, and uh, my best friend was picking me up. And at the airport and then coming over to my house and I sat them both down, my wife and my best friend. And I said, look, everything's going to change from here on out. I mean, they were looking at me like these big eyes, like what just happened? And I said, everything changed. And I had this born again experience and they were freaking out. They were like, he's just joined a cult. They didn't know that they were actually right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did choice. Joined this this cult. I didn't know, but uh, 
I got on, quote unquote, on fire for God. And that began a 10-year ministry in evangelism. And I spoke to over a million people. I remember I got my million-person plaque from the ministry. And, uh, and it was fundamentalist, hardcore, right-wing, Republican, American nationalism, theology, all blended and melded together. And it turns out I was a pretty good speaker. And, you know, before I knew it, I, I was speaking in Washington, D.C. I was speaking at ALEC conventions, the American Legislative Executive Committee, this hardcore right-wing policy organizing uh, institution. Uh, I was receiving an award in Washington, D.C. during the Bush administration for our ministry being one of the thousand points of light. Uh, which was a big program that that, that uh, GW had back in the day. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, or yeah, and, uh, and it was it was amazing time, and and it was really intoxicating the power and 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 the presence. I mean, I have people frothing at the mouth as I just be going off, of, you know, on on uh, creationism needing to be taught in schools and the, and the evils of public schools and how we need voucher systems and going off on, on the abortion. And I'd be, I even had it in my mind one day that I would be a martyr and kill myself an abortion doctor. Uh, I thought that would be like the kids would be so mm. proud to come to wow. prison and visit me because I stood up for life. And, uh, and then I, uh, and this just continued, wow. and I felt really powerful and comfortable. Like this is what I was born to do, and uh, and that's in the midst of that is when I began my deconstruction, and it started ironically wow. with a progressive board member on our ministry. Uh, wonderful man. He and his wife became like grandparents to Kathy and I. But he slipped me by a book, and I think you're gonna you're gonna go. Oh, that makes sense now. He slipped me a book by Brendan Manning called "The Ragamuffin Gospel," and he said, wow. "Have you read this?" Yeah. I said, "No." So I read this thing, and it broke me. It just broke me. Um, wow. Now yeah. other things were happening. Uh, I. I we would use my platform as an athlete to get into public schools, which was Satan's territory, and to preach the gospel <laughs> in public school assemblies, literally balls to the wall, invite them to ask Jesus into their heart and put check marks down on cards. And we would count the check marks. And that's how we raised funds because we just saved, you know, 300 students from going as one th theological teacher at the time said that we're going, that we're on the, that we plucked off the conveyor belt to hell. Uh, so by any means necessary, we lied, we deceived, we went into these public schools, we did this stuff, but it was righteous. Uh, I got assigned to saving Catholics in Catholic schools. And this was a pretty cool new ministry. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in, and this might give you some frame of reference, I'm, I'm in the John MacArthur uh, corner. Uh, you know, great whore of Babylon. I'm so sorry. Oh, wow. Uh, whore of Babylon, the whole oh. thing. Pope is the Antichrist. So I'm assigned this special assignment, and I'm starting to speak in all these Catholic schools. 
but the thing was, of course, Catholics are all going to hell. They're part of the big, you know, deceit. Uh, in this particular ministry, I, I had to stay. Sometimes I stayed in, in the monasteries. Sometimes I stayed in people's homes. And I met the most amazing Catholic people who just had hearts for the poor, the broken, the outcasts. And I had like these long conversations. And I also knew a lot of them were far better educated theologically than I was, far better read. I was very narrow. Yeah. You know I mean, I was literally yeah. formed. It was moody, you know, moody Bible school and, and navigators and mariners and all these discipleship programs. But there was always this uneasy shift in me. And one was because of my mom, because now you know, my mom was the most gracious, most beautiful woman in the world. I loved her. I was a mama's boy, but she was going to hell now. And I had a tough time reconciling that, even though I would tell her that, that she had it wrong. And, but it was tough inside. It was tough. And, uh, and, and, and that created some space. And then I had a really tough time when I would rub up against these Catholic people thinking like, they're going to hell too. I mean, that guy who literally gives the shoes off his feet to homeless people who he sees on the street, uh, these people are going to hell. And, and it, this began to create tension and, and create space in my heart, even though I wasn't open about that. And, uh, and, then, and then I get the book from Brennan Manning, and that just began to crack things wide open. So I, I, uh, I, I saw something that I would fully embrace later with Brendan, which was universalism in between the lines, just this universal love of God. And that was something organic before I became a Christian that I had inside of me. And, 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 it, and it touched up, uh, upon that. And then I started to shift within my ministry and, uh, I started feeling guilty about the bait and switch and I started caring about the kids. And, and so I started to shift what I did in the schools against the tide of everything that the ministry was doing. And I refused to lead kids in prayer in schools. Um, I was very open about my own faith, but I wasn't going to try to coerce them. And instead of trying to get a check mark on a card, I would ask the kids to tell me what you're going through, if there's anything I could help you with. And then afterwards, I would get these cards and I would read them. And that began to allow me to get help to kids in the school uh, that were suicidal, that were little, literally right, Paul, I'm, I'm on the brink of suicide and I need help. And, and I'd be in this town and I'd literally we'd get a hold of this kid and we'd get him counseling. We'd get him to the, to the school counselor and... Uh, or they were being abused sexually, and we would get the police and intervene, and 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 all of a sudden, like the reports, the reports we would send back was how many check marks we got, and I just abandoned that, and I started writing like these stories about the kids in the hallway, you know, and that went over big with some. It didn't go over with others. Some of the board members were really like, it's all about salvation, you know, check check marks for Jesus. Uh, but there were others that were going like, these stories are really moving. And uh, I, I, I incorporated into the entire ministry an 800 number for suicide, teen suicide. Um, I started handing out football cards where kids could write to me personally. And they wanted to fire me. 
but they couldn't because I was super high in demand as a speaker. And as I shifted this way, a lot of people were digging, digging what I was doing. I wasn't leaving a school blown up with a lot of angry people about what just took place, but a, a school leaving like, that was a man of faith, but man, he didn't shove it down our throat. And he just helped a lot of kids. And so I was going in a, in a different uh, direction entirely. That was amplified because one, one of my Bible teachers was a, was a guy named Charles Ryrie. Dr. Ryrie was from uh, Dallas Seminary. And, uh, and I was a big MacArthur guy, but now the cracks were happening. And MacArthur wrote a book called uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. And it was a very controversial book because it was very legalistic and black and white, in and out, salvation thing. And Ryrie wrote a counter book to that called So Great a Salvation. And it was a really a much more open-ended book. And that, again, created space in me. I really liked Ryrie. We, we communicated a lot about the grace of God and how, and, and maybe it's a lot bigger than we think. Uh, and uh, ultimately, that brought me to this place. That was 10 years. And then I became the pastor at Ojai Valley Community Church 24. I'm in my 24th year. I just resigned. Uh, So the deconstruction continued. 23 years ago, I took the job here because I was speaking in the in the valley, and this church, this school was looking, uh, this church was looking for a pastor. I was at a men's breakfast or something, and they asked me to speak at the church, and I did. And afterwards, they had a search committee kind of set up. I didn't even know that they asked me to interview with. Uh, But I was already on this progression. This this deconstruction, I should say, as a progression. Uh, and uh, they were on the purpose-driven church thing. Do you guys remember that? Purpose-driven church. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, Rick yeah. Warren, baby. Saddleback church and all that. So they were doing that, and they were looking for like yeah, a, a yeah. dynamic pastor. So they hired me, and I did it. It was a complete risk for me. It was nothing I ever saw myself doing. It was a complete train wreck for them and me. Uh, but it was, it was an accident. It wasn't, it wasn't their fault or mine. We were, we crossed paths, but they didn't know that they were on a flat line and I was on this ascension, although we call it deconstructing. For me, it was evolving. And, and they were there, their former pastor before me was, uh, again, it's a very fundamentalist church that I stepped into. Uh, and he was a, you know, he's a former colonel in, in, in the army and, there was, you know, flags and America and Republicanism, all these things. And, and I, and I took the pulpit and, uh, and at first, man, the thing blew up. I mean, the church went from like 50 people to like 700 and it was packed, you know, we were adding seats and, and, and I was doing a lot of kind of purpose driven church thing, which was nice. Uh, it was, it was safe. Uh, but it wasn't where I was going. And that's when I started like speaking from my heart. And I started calling out some, you know, some ideas like American exceptionalism. I started talking about the American story that we've been told and the injustices done to Native Americans and questioning nuclear uh, proliferation and the morality of the bomb and started questioning things. And man, the place went friggin' crazy. And, uh, and that's the way it was for about 10 years. It was about 
were willing to hear what I said and might even be saying like, that was really cool. And 49% wanted to burn me at the stake after service. And it was a living, it was a living hell. It really was. That's an impressive percentage. Yeah, it was weird, you know, because I feel bad for the 50 that were for me because ultimately down the line, I would disappoint them too. (laughs) Right, right. I just kept adding years, but uh, the theology, I remember one faction got so upset at me and they said, just start teaching the word of God, exposit verse by verse, stop all the topical stuff. And this was a big shift in my life. And I said, okay. So I decided to do the gospel of Mark. And this guy, a progressive guy says, you should check out this commentary. It's by Ched Myers. It's called Binding the Strong Man. This is the best thing I've ever read on the gospel of Mark. So I read this entire commentary and I teach through the series. And Ched was not just a progressive. He was, he's a, he's a, uh, he's a Mennonite and brilliant theologians, as his wife is, Elaine, and very influential at this period of my life. And as I began to preach the gospel with these new sources, and I had many new new sources coming in, I just threw myself into education now, because as a fundamentalist, I couldn't do that. And I was reading people, you know, like, like Dominic Croissant and Marcus Borg and Shelby Spong and I mean all these people. I mean, all, I mean, I was only allowed to read Moody Bible study. Now I'm reading Princeton and Yale and and these great seminaries and, and Metzger and I'm doing all this critique of of doctrine and and church history. I threw myself into church history, and you know it was so funny because I realized, God, man, I didn't know anything. I was so prepared to be a fundamentalist, but not actually know anything about the Bible, its origins, its truth. I mean, I just, and so my deconstruction took place publicly and it was really, uh, it was painful. There was a lot of people that, that dug where I was going. Uh, when I preached that gospel of Mark verse by verse, the same people that were begging me to do it were soon begging me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> back to the topical stuff, yeah. man. Get back to the topical. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're taking the words of Jesus seriously here, man. You know, we were like so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was. It was. It was. Oh really, man! And then we had a big, massive church split, and that was actually a good thing. It was actually a good thing. Uh, it, it it gave me some peace. It was a very small tribe that was left. Uh, but we, we were kind of on the same path and we were doing more social justice work and that shifted in me. And then I, uh, I, I was really just, I, I couldn't do the building thing anymore. Um, so I, I, I made a pitch. I said, let's sell the building. And, uh, and we did, we sold the building. We, we owned the building, but we sold it and stuck it into an investment. So we had seven figures and we put it into an investment that created income for us and we sold it to a school. And then we were going to, I wanted to do church, you know, somewhere else outdoors. I just didn't, I I was so up to my eyes. We had wasted so many millions of dollars in my time there uh, on conditional use permits and traffic studies and uh, health codes and fire codes education codes, because we had a Christian school. Oh my God, was that a nightmare. Um, but 
Woo, that's a whole other thing, huh? Oh, Jesus, that was incredible. My poor kids were in it, you know? And, um, but so oh, man. We, we, but I got rid of the school. Uh, that was a big hubbaloo. And, 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 we, and we brought in this secular school, a great charter school that ended up buying the, buying the church. I got rid. Oh my God! I got rid of our missions board and our missions. We got. I, I wiped out missions. <laughs> like no more money. No more money to missions. No more mission stuff. No more setting up tents in Africa. You know, with to to, to save save savages. And we ain't doing that anymore. This is, this is a paradigm shift. And we sold the building, and 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 that was awesome. But then the, the schools like we don't use the church. And we don't use the building on Sundays. You're, you can use it. So the next thing you know, we're using the building for a, a penny on the dollar to do the same thing we were doing. And, uh, and we had this investment working wow. for us. So it was, it was really beautiful. But my, my deconstruction continued. Um, and then, I, I, I guess I got to be honest, you know, five years ago, Donald Trump was on the scene. And I'm watching what's happening to the American evangelical church. And I'm getting pretty vocal about it because I, I, I see the signs of what's happening and I see that the nationalism and the racism come back in ways that I, I thought we were progressing wow, yeah. and all of a sudden we're, we're, we're moving backwards. And, uh, and, and then the, the, the four years of the Trump presidency, uh, I began to literally lose my mind. Uh, it, it, it took a toll on me and became very bitter, very angry, uh, and, and concerned and scared and, and, and disillusioned, disillusioned with obviously, uh, Christianity, disillusioned with, uh, my own country and, uh, and, and started having a mental health crisis during those years. And, and that continued to go big. And the last year of the presidency was also compounded by COVID. And that shut me indoors. Right. Yeah. Uh, thank God. I mean, we, we, we sold the church because we weren't financially impacted at all. You know, and there's so many churches that were hugely impacted. Right, right, right. They had to gather, yeah. they had to do this. You know, there's, there's a method to the madness. You got to keep it going. And we didn't have to do that, but uh, I was shelled up, and I it, it got so bad, dude. I just uh, my deconstruction went beyond deconstruction; it went all the way to the to the bottom. I guess I could say uh, I, I became an agnostic, which I still am today, in the truest form of the of of the definition. I don't know. I have hunches. I got hunches, but I don't know. I have no certainty. I remember when my, when my mom died, and I can kind of laugh about this. Don't get me wrong, not be, but it's still a funny scene to me today because my mom is dying on her death, but I'm with her. My dad's with her. The family's with her. I'm holding her. Dad's holding her. But she had Alzheimer's. And for me, my mom died the day I remember vividly that she didn't know who I was anymore. I, that's when I began the mourning process. And that was for many years. So when she actually was dying for me, it was a release. She was going to be released. It was good. Not for my dad, of course. But so mom dies and I didn't know what to say. So I said some stupid shit like, dad, 
she's okay. She's in a better place. And uh, my dad is old and frail, but he's a tough, tough fucker. He, he just looks at me and he grabs me by the shirt <laughs> and he jerks me into about an inch from his nose and he just growls, how do you know? And I was just like, he's calling bullshit on the pastor. <laughs> Saying that, and I'm like, <laughs> and, I, and, and I said to my dad, I, 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 I think I might have chuckled him. I'm like, I, I don't know. I said, I just got yeah. a hunch. <laughs> That's what I yeah. said. Yeah. That's all I got. It's, and it's, got all I got, it, it's all I got today. I'm, I'm right. Yeah. I, 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 it's all I have yeah. today. So I, I deconstructed all the way into atheism and then nihilism. And I was absolutely in existential despair uh, because I still have this big heart for everything and everything in my heart is hurting I'm watching what's happening to my LGBTQ friends. I'm watching what's happening to my African, African-American friends that have been teammates and friends of mine since high school. I'm just watching everything devolve, and, and, I'm, and I'm in crisis. And, I'm, and I, I, all I wanted to do was die. All I wanted to do was kill myself. All I wanted to do was exit. Now, that was compounded by the fact that one of my biggest phobias after 33 years in ministry was something I never expected when I became a pastor, was my immersion into death. I mean, my God. I I swam in the pool of death for 23 years. I mean, it was every fucking week. somebody was calling me in the middle of the night because their kid just got killed in a car accident or their husband just shot himself in the head or their kid just died of an overdose. And that was the most consuming thing mentally and energy-wise of being a pastor that nobody told me about. I thought I was worried about having something to say on Sundays when I first started this job. I had no idea the, the, what would come out of me, what would happen to me by being immersed in death, as I mean, murder, suicide, everything you can imagine, and people I knew. You know, I wasn't just some triage in the in the in the in the emergency room. These were people I knew, and I became phobic, and I did not want to live longer than any of my kids or my wife. And I literally would just be petrified. Every time the kid walked out the door, every time my wife went out on a vacation with her sister or friends, and, and I just wanted to die. So the better part of all last year, I tried to drink myself to death. I mean, I, I don't know how I could have consumed so much alcohol and still be alive. I was doing it every night because I couldn't, I, I had to be out for the night because one of my biggest fears was the night, because if I woke up in the night, that's when all the monsters out of, would come out from under the bed in the closet and consume me. And that's when I would, you know, really want to just speed up the process and take a gun and end it all. And, uh, and my, my recovery came in the form of an intervention, at least created the space. My wife and my four kids 
pulled me out of bed one day, which is where I was spending all my time, and sat me down and, oh, God. Then they said that, you know, they couldn't take it anymore. And uh, I saw their faces, and I was just like, God, I'm killing them. And I knew, I knew it, but you don't know. I mean, I really thought if I could just kill myself, I'd be doing everybody a favor. It'd be so much better. And, and I just wanted to go to sleep. I didn't want eternal life. I still don't want eternal life. It sounds exhausting to me. Jesus, this life's been long enough. I just wanted, <laughs> I, want, I want peace. I want to be passed out for eternity. Yeah. You know, I want to be just passed out drunk for eternity. And, and, uh, but the intervention created space and I love my kids. I love my, my, and they love me. And I knew that. Uh, so I tried, I tried, but I was so fucked up, man. I mean, I have major PTSD and, and you combine that with my CTE and I'm clinically there. I mean, I've had so much traumatic brain injury from football through all those years, so many concussions. And I've seen so many of my teammates going through it and the depression and all that comes with that. I mean, I was a mess and I was trying to white knuckle it like, okay, stop drinking. So I'll just stop drinking. You know, well, that fucking wasn't going to work. You know, it's just, right. Um, and then you feel more guilty and, and then how do you, you, how do you unwind just being depressed? Right. I was still depressed as hell and on medication and it obviously wasn't working, but that, 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 that intervention created space. And then November 3rd came and Trump lost the election and there was a pressure release valve there for me because I was in terror. I was in terror. I knew I wasn't going to make it. If he got reelected, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be here anymore. Uh, so that created more space. And then in December, Christmas, my son, one of my sons, I got, I got amazing kids. I got to tell you, they're just amazing. Um, for Christmas, I open up a package and it's a set of noise canceling headphones and, uh, and a bag okay. of mush and a bag of mushrooms. <laughs> and he says, dad, you know, you, you need to try this. And he, um, I said, okay, I was scared of trying mushrooms. You know, I only done them once in my life, like 35 years ago. And it was fun and all, but it was a, it was a trip. And, uh, and I had another buddy that was telling me about microdosing and um, psychedelics and what they're finding in the treatment of depression and PTSD and alcoholism. And this friend kept sending me these, these links and articles, and I really wasn't interested, but my son was. And he's like, yeah, try this. So he sets me up, and we sit up in the backyard. He sits a chair for me. It's a nice day gets the headphones, I get the, the mushrooms, and he's like, I'm going to be right here, I'm going to be gardening. And uh, I take the mushrooms, and I put the headset on, and, and I trip. And I'm sitting in the backyard. I'm not talking about flying dragons and shit. I'm just talking about... <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the sky, and all of a sudden I saw how blue it was. I'm looking at the sky and all of a sudden I see clouds and I see their form and their beauty as they're moving across the sky. 
and I see birds and I see colors. And for the first time, and I can't even tell you how long, I felt good. It was the oddest, strangest feeling. And that was the beginning of an odyssey. I called up my buddy, Rob Bell. And I'm like, Rob, have you ever done mushrooms? I just did mushrooms. It was fucking intense. And he's like, oh, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> you need to see this and this guy. Okay. And he gives me this guy. He, needs, he says, this guy, because I, I poured it open to Rob. And Rob has helped me through the years. Yeah. Um, Rob's also the son of a bitch that got me in all the trouble. Right. Because of course he is. Of course he is. Uh, <laughs> big time. Big time. I, I, I mean, I loved his books, and I loved his book, Love Wins. And, uh, and Rob, I got introduced to Rob via a friend of mine who moved from Michigan to my church and was in my church community. Wonderful woman. And she's like, you remind me of my pastor, Rob Bell. Have you ever heard of him? I'm like, no. And, uh, and I'm going through my deconstruction. And, and I think I'm all alone in this. And I, uh, so I start listening to Rob Bell and I'm like, oh my God, I love this guy. I start reading his books. I'm like, this is amazing. I start sharing it with the congregation. And there were still people that were there that this was another level that was too much. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, they, they, they just, they, you know, I showed Numa videos and they just go, this is, no, you can't. They wanted me, I remember I went through, uh, I went through multiple heresy trials at my church. Uh, some of them were public. One was unbelievable. I think the whole goddamn town was there from Ojai. And it was like a thousand people, and they were just ripping me to the bone uh, publicly. I'm standing up there with a moderator. It was just because the board called, thought this would be a good thing. It was a terrible thing. But you know, the board called me in, they, and their board members wanted me to renounce Bob, Rob Bell. And I'm like, no way. I mean, I love this guy. It ain't going to happen. You can fire me, but I'm not renouncing this guy. So we went there, and, 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 uh, Next thing I know, I'm following Rob, and he leaves the ministry, and he moves out to Southern California, and then he does uh, starts doing these little gatherings, these two-day gatherings. And I remember I went to the first one, and I went there, and I got to meet him and talk with him, and it was filled with all these pastors, right? And they're all like, don't post any pictures on social media. I'll lose my job. <laughs> um, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> They're, they're crap in their pants. It was like all these petrified pastors, including me, like, I'm here, but nobody can know. You know, it was so funny. But I found all these other pastors, they were going through the same thing I was going through. Right. And it was awesome. I wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. I, and and this, this evolved, this, this, this deconstruction was really an evolvement of thought. And, um, and I threw myself during that time into study as well. I began to realize that, you know, all these doctrines were just, oh, my God, man-made, you know, vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement. You know, I mean, penal substitution. What a horrific thing. Eternal damnation. All these things. These, these things were all going to the wayside. And I began to see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. Uh, and so, but 
Rob, Rob helped me through that period and he still helps me today and we help each other now. And, uh, so he says, you got to see this guy. So I see this guy and, uh, for my PTSD and everything else. And, uh, and he uses medicine and I went to him and I began to counsel with him. And for the first time in my life, I had hope. And we did some sessions together, some really potent psychedelics. And I'm telling you, I remember coming home after that first session with the medicine and realizing, oh my God, I don't want to kill myself. It was just like, wow, that's I don't want to die. I want to live. And I remember my wife and my kids, I'm like, I don't want to die. It was just, it was literally like being rebirthed. And, uh, and I say that because it was just, wow. And I discovered God again because I was in this nihilistic existential despair. And the psychedelics allowed me to see again the hum that's around us everywhere, right? I'm not a Christian anymore. Um, I'm not anything. I'm a human being. And I have a sense in the mystery of something big and divine, something divine and, and, and behind it all. I see it when I look at the sky at night. I see it when Kathy and I go on our beach strolls on Monday. We're going to go to the beach on Monday. We just we do it every Monday. And I, and I see God. But God to me now is in everything. God is in everything. And, it's, and I'm not trying to... But what God is, I don't know. It's, 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 not, it's, it's not a man in the sky. It's not... I, I, can't, I can't do that thing anymore. Um, it's something so much bigger and, 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 and that I see God in a rock. I mean, when I think of a rock, the molecular structure of a rock at the atomic and the subatomic level, I mean, stuff we're privy to that people weren't privy to a couple of hundred years ago, you know, yeah. that is, that is heavy, man. That is, that is magic. That is mystery. That is God, it's in everything and every animal and every, every, every living and un- there's nothing unliving to me anymore. The planet is not an unliving, inanimate object. Everything is animated to me today. Everything is animated. Uh, and, and again, this is not a new religion. This is just a release from religion for me. Now, I was in a really good place. Uh, I love the work that so many people are doing uh, in in reinterpreting the gospel correctly, I believe. Uh, but when I look at the Bible, I don't see it as something divine. I see it as something human. But in its humanness, I find divinity. Right. In its, it's, in that, in its, yeah. in its human authors, yeah. experience, yeah. it's divine. Right. Because anybody and everything is divine. So it's in there whether it's right or wrong. And, and somewhere in there, uh, we have to determine what is progressing or regressing, what is moving us forward or pushing us back. Uh, I, I believe that 
divinity is evolution. I believe 13.5 billion years. So you two guys and me can sit here talking about right. what we don't know. <laughs> isn't it, isn't it ironic though, Paul's like, you, wait, okay, now it makes sense. As a human Absolutely. product, um, but as a purely divine download, I call bullshit. Um, because it's, it's, there's just no, yeah. there's oh, just absolutely. no way, you know, and, and it's strange credulity to think that that's what that is. Um, but the other thing that you said that marked, well, and, and so <laughs> I love Brad Jersak and uh, I think you, you might've seen my, I stole one of his quotes and I've made a meme out of it, but, um, he said, theology is, he said, he said, theology is a toddler with blunt crayons trying to scribble the best idea they know of God. And, and naively hoping him, hoping that he'll tell them good job or that they nailed it. <laughs> I yeah. told that to my therapist. It's perfect, isn't it? I weekend. can't think of a better description of what we've been doing with theology all these years. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm not throwing out the Bible. I'm not throwing out any sacred uh, writings to traditions I, I, because there's, they can still be sacred, but not in the same way they were yeah, before. Yeah, for sure. They're, 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 yeah, and and, and that yeah. I mean I look at oh my god. Well, I was gonna say I don't I don't I, I don't you. feel like they stand I, I don't feel like they any longer stand as <laughs> sacred on their own. Like 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 this thing all by itself is no. now something worthy of my worship or adoration or whatever, unless and until they're connected with me through the human Jesus. Okay, and now I see divinity in what's going on here, and I see the truth of people telling their story. And I can buy that for sure. Um, it means they, yes. they were probably very often wrong. Yes. And that's fine. Um, but I think the Bible, if it does anything, it, it truthfully records yes. what people really thought, even if they were screwed up in their thinking. And, and, and for me, even as I look at the, I, I still see, yeah, I see absolutely. the evolution and I see the, I see the retardation. I see the yeah. moving forward yeah. and the coming back. You know, it, it, I see it both, but I, I see it still. You see humanity's movement yeah. forward in it, and I see that in other ancient. So, but this is where the divinity comes in. It it, it comes to us to take the best, yeah. and and move forward with that. Well, and then and and and, then, and not get locked into right. Didn't we then get to the end of the book though, and then stop progressing? Yeah, like the like the entire trajectory oh, of the Bible it's, it's yeah. is us is humanity moving forward and moving forward and moving forward, and then we stopped. Because, you know, the right. literal pages ended. And so now this is where we are um, stuck in sometimes very ancient and antiquated, you know, paradigms and systems that kill people like us, by the way. Yeah, I see. I see divinity. Yeah. You, you, I mean, there's sacred stuff being written in, in that term today. I mean, that we need to be reading. Yeah. yeah I mean, we need to be reading and, yeah. and seeing the spirit in I'm going to say, you know, for me, the ragamuffin gospel is, yeah. is, is a sacred text. It, it broke me in much the same way it broke yes. you. Um, the beauty of, of, of Brennan Manning's understanding of Jesus and the gospel was like revolutionary. But before I forget and, and, and we get to two sidetracked, uh, you brought up Rob Bell. So I'm going to tell you my Rob Bell story. You ready? Oh, I want to hear it. <laughs> I went to see Rob Bell cause I'm a huge fan. Um, borderline fanboy. And I'll, I'll, I'll own that. All right, Rob, if you ever hear this, um, I'm a, I'm a fanboy. But, um, I went to see Rob Bell on one of the tours that he was on. I've seen him a few times. 
Um, and on the big screen, you know, how you like to do the big screen, right? Um, oh, yeah. I look, I look up and there's a big picture of some dude I recognize smoking a cigar shirtless. And I said to myself, Oh my God, that's Paul. And so I'm like, so my revelation, I want you to hear this and I want you to comment on it, but here's what you, you need to hear this first, because I want you to know where my head is at. My, my, my initial thought wasn't, Oh my God, Paul Bergman knows Rob Bell. My thought was, Oh my God, Rob Bell knows Paul Bergman. <laughs> and, how, and how effing cool is that that he knows that guy so I, I want you to know where you stand <laughs> I can't wait to tell him that I'm going to tell him that and now he's I never wait. coming on the show okay good uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't throw you under the bus I won't mention your name I'm guy. No, just, just tell him I heard this guy and he was like oh my god Rob knows that guy that's oh man, awesome. now he's hella cool. That is so, that is so but that, awesome. But that really was my thought. I was with my wife, you know, and we walked out of there. I'm like, did you see? Did you see? And she's and she didn't know. She was she's and I just I I showed her, I told her, I said, Oh my gosh. And then I meant to ask you about that. I think you brought it up at some point on online somewhere. I think you might have even shown that picture online a few times. Which cause it's just cool, man. You're just I think you have a glass of whiskey and a cigar and you're just sitting in a lawn chair or something. I don't know. What oh, yeah, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's my beautiful place in the back there. And, and, and I, this is a rare yeah. event. I'm inside. It's kind of chilly out. And I, cause Kathy told me, put a shirt on my, like, ah, oh, fuck. Okay. Put a shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that. <laughs> got, I'm dressing up. Guys right here. It's like, Classy show. Oh but man! Anyway, so yeah, I was smoking a cigar in the back, and, and, and well, uh, I just—that's awesome, dude. I had a muse, and I shot it off to Rob with a with a picture. I had no idea he's going to find it so hilarious that he would take it on tour with him. But um, but it's yeah, he's yeah. He, that picture's he's, been all all over the world, man. It's been all over the world. Uh, but Rob, you know, Rob's a great guy. That was the most important thing to me. You know, you meet certain people that you look up to. Uh, you know. Through Rob, I got to meet Richard Rohr. Well, of course, you know his reputation precedes wow. him. But the most important thing when I sure. yeah. when I got to meet Father Rohr was this is a great guy. That just yeah. a great guy. I mean, that's what means. And and Rob's like that. Rob's a great yeah. guy. He's just a great guy. And uh, it, yeah. and so that always means a lot to me. And I'm really glad to say that I got to on more than one occasion, but I got to, to meet Brennan Manning and I got to personally thank him oh, wow. for the, the, wow. the revolution he, he, he created in my own life and thinking. And, um, and, uh, that meant a lot. That meant a lot to me because like to you, he, he was a sacred individual whose authenticity you know, just inspired me to, to continue in mind. I couldn't, for better or worse, as Kathy would always say, you were always authentic. I, I never tried to keep my job. I never tried to make the choice, although I had many of them. I could have been a sensational, uh, purpose-driven church kind of pastor, you know? I mean, I, I started out that for way sure, in some sense. Sure. I, I, I could have had a very lucrative yeah career in doing that and speaking except that I couldn't and I, it's not even 
It's not like some kind of virtue. I just couldn't keep my damn mouth shut. I just yeah. couldn't. I just can't, you know, <laughs> I just can't do it. Once you see, you can't unsee. Mm. Uh, once, once you've learned, yeah. you can't unlearn what you know. You, and I, right. I couldn't stuff yeah. it away. And I really threw myself into the academics. I mean, I did the hard work of textual criticism and, and origins and, and big time into church history and, and uh, theological history and evolution. And this was all stuff that I was in, I was in the ministry for 10 years. I didn't know any of that. And I'm running around telling people, you know, here's the truth, you know? And I'm like, Oh my God. And I gotta tell you the story about Ojai though. And I hope you, you guys, if you're ever close, Oh man, please. You don't have to come to Ojai, but everywhere close to Southern Cal, let's get together. But Ojai is pretty bitching. Ojai, Ojai is a kind of a spiritual center. And when, when I first came here, that was like a big deal. They're like, oh, we're glad you're in Ojai. We have to save all these people from these occultists and these Eastern religions and all the, all the, you know, all the false religions. And I'm like, oh, okay. But anyway, so Krishnamurti is a big figure in Ojai. And if you don't know who he is, he was the Messiah and groomed world teacher of a turn-of-the-century religion that became a worldwide religion, uh, and that's theosophy, right? And the, the theosophists were a turn-of-the-century turn of religion that, that combined science and philosophy and theology together uh, in an evolving kind of way. Uh, why, why is Krishna, Krishnamurti so important? Well, this woman named Annie Besant, and there's a school and property that, that, that she owned, that there's a school. It's a very famous and a great school. It's called the Besant School. Uh, uh, she, she was a British woman, and she, had, she became a theosophist and uh, became the leader of the movement at one point. And when she was in India, she adopted this teenage boy, uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. And he was then groomed to become the Messiah and world teacher for this new religious movement. And he was super well-educated. She sent him to England, and he, and he had an amazing background in his Indian and Hinduism. And all these things came together uh, where he was going to be the Messiah. And ironically, he ended up in Ojai. His brother had a really bad lung condition, and they were traveling from uh, from India to Europe, and that happened to be across the United States. And he ended up in Ojai because uh, he had heard while coming to California that this place had hot springs that helped people with ailments. So he and his brother came here, and his brother died uh, after a couple of years. And then he continued to live here. And then this was going to become the Mecca the, 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 the Jerusalem of this new movement. And he was a brilliant man, except he rejected that whole guru thing. He was just not into it. And right, he, right. he blew the whole movement away when he resigned in 1929 here in Ojai. And I love the guy because it, what he said is, don't follow me. Uh, don't don't do that. The, he goes. There is no path to truth. 
There is no religion or sect to truth. The truth, truth is pathless. You don't find it on one path. There isn't one. It's, it's just the truth, and it's pathless. And as soon as wow. you start to say that we are the path to truth, you create a cage. And I don't want to be that cage for anybody. Find your truth. Find your journey. Amen. And, and, and do that on your own. Mm. And he resigned. It shocked the theosophical world. It was a pretty big movement. And, and, and they were all about having the truth, just like Christianity is. And that's the interesting thing about uh, Annie Besant, is that she was a woman who had incredible intellect and was so progressive. She really was progressive. And, and yet she fell into the trap in her progressiveness. So she had an amazingly accurate uh, disdain for Christianity in the right areas, vicarious atonement, eternal uh, conscious torment, uh, uh, inerrancy of scriptures. These were things that appalled her. She, she didn't, she loved Jesus like I do, at least much of Jesus' teaching. Jesus can be a real asshole too, at least according to the scriptures, <laughs> if, if it's true. And, and if, you need, if you need me to cite it to you, I will, because I was so <laughs> trained to overlook these things that, that uh, and again, I, I don't know right, what's right. true. I don't know what Jesus said or what Jesus didn't say. I don't know what Jesus did and Jesus didn't do. None of us know. None of us know. You know, but we have to follow our hunches. And there are certain things that are written down that resonate with me that Jesus says, and that I say that's pure genius. That is so. That is so beautiful and consistent with what I think. Um, but yeah, he renounced the cage, and then Annie turned around and built another one. You know, right away, like, oh, my son's, my son's the right, Messiah. Right. You know, follow him into truth. And he's like, right. no, 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 no. It, so, isn't that what we do, though? Yeah. <laughs> that is what we do. It's so natural to, to do that. And I mean, it even has good intentions. I mean, evangelicals that are out there that drive sure. me crazy have good intentions. I mean, I did. I was trying to save you from hell. That was a good intention. Now, my premise... I look back as horrific and, and my, my, uh, my, my elevated status of self as being one that's not going to hell because I got the truth. I mean, come on. How, how arrogant is that? It, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, but, that, but that's yeah. the problem. And, and, and that's why even today, as much as um, I can sometimes be a thorn in the side of progressives uh, reinterpreting scripture. And what we think, and I was one of those, because the truth is, I don't know. I at least have to admit that. I will admit this is the way I like to interpret the scriptures. This is, this is what I like about right. Jesus. And I can say this is what I don't like about Jesus. Yeah. Right? And because and, and, there are things I don't Fair like. And, and the truth is, they may not even actually be things that Jesus did. I don't know. You don't know. Uh, so I'm just looking for the good. I mean, I'll give you the Syrophoenician woman. Remember that story? Jesus goes, you know, from... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Caesarea Philippi, Bunyas. He takes his disciples. They go north from there into the Gentile territory. And this Syrophoenician woman comes and she starts begging Jesus because her daughter is obviously mentally ill, demon-possessed, but probably just completely out of her freaking mind. And as a parent, there's nothing worse, man. There's nothing worse than watching your kids suffer. You know, I, I have a son with muscular dystrophy. Right. Amen to that. My, my son has muscular dystrophy. I'm right. watching him 
melt away in front of my eyes, you know? And, and in my bad state of mind, I just looked at that as, what a fucking injustice. He did nothing. Guy was a 170-pound wrestling champion yeah. his senior year. He was a CrossFitter. He wasn't just an athlete. He's a better athlete than I ever was. And then he gets hit with this rock out of the proverbial sky, and he's melting in front of my eyes. And, and it made me angry and bitter. Now I see the beauty in it. Not that, 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 that suffering is beautiful. Wow. Not that what's happened is what you wish on anybody. I see the beauty in his spirit. I mean, the kid's gone right now with his wow. girlfriend. You know what they're mm. doing? They're going, they're going looking for uh, all over Northern California. I don't know. They may be in Oregon now. They're looking for Frisbee golf courses because his arm, yeah, yeah. yeah his arms that used to rip off a hundred pull-ups, I mean, literally a hundred pull-ups are now complete noodles. They're just wet noodles. All, I mean, they're just, they literally look like strings, right? He, he, he struggles to brush his teeth or drink a, a water bottle, but he can grip a Frisbee. And he found wow. that he can use his arm like a piece of rope and he can use his torso to swing yes. and snap that. Yes. <laughs> and he's a fucking Frisbee golfer now. Dude, that is. I can, I can totally see it, man. Yes. I can see it. And now I see that. And I don't, oh, look, man. I don't see the yeah. injustice. I'm like, I mean, I don't wish it, but I'm like, look at that guy. Look what he's doing. That is so. Yeah, that yeah. is so God. That is so divinity. I, I see the way you are with your kids, man. And uh, well, I just I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to bring this to a close. Yeah, but sure. Can I, can we make a deal, Paul? Can, um, can we come back for? Par- I don't feel like we're done. Um, maybe John's. I think you sense this too. Like like I legit feel like we just got started <laughs> with you. And if I didn't yeah. have some place yeah. to be in 15 minutes, I wouldn't go uh, anywhere. This is a good um, You've got you've got me. Hook, line, and sinker. Um, but as soon as we get offline here, I want to schedule you, if you're willing, to. Because I think we just scratched the surface, and I haven't even had a chance to talk to you about your kids, who I don't even know, but I love. Um, I haven't had a chance to talk to. You. John's got questions he hadn't even. Yeah, I have. I have a. I have. John gets I to got, ask a question. I got, I got if, a question. Write them down. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna just written down. Unnaturally say, hey, for the moment, we're gonna pause. Okay. One of the things that Nat and I have done with this conversation is we, we literally don't come with an agenda. We literally don't. I have like, I don't even have it written down. Like the questions I was going to ask you aren't written down anywhere. Um, it was just, I, I listened to a podcast you did recently and I'm like, ah, oh, I got to ask him about that. Um, but it's organic. It's, yeah, it's very authentic. We just let it go. And, and if, if we aren't willing to be authentic and listen to what people are saying and listen to, listen yeah. to their heart, what the fuck yeah. are we doing? Yeah. Why are we even here? You know? And it's like, there's so many things that you said. It's like, you can't, once you see, you can't unsee it. Once you, once you learn it, you can't unlearn it. Um, and there's so much depth to that. And, uh, yeah, normally to ask people how to connect with you, but I mean, I think we all know that the best way to connect with you seems to be on Facebook. Pablo um, Berkman. one of your two, one of your two, uh, Facebooks, depending, <laughs> <laughs> depending on which one is in, is in Facebook jail. 
Okay, so I spent 30 days in Facebook. What did you do? And I finally come out and I'm like, I, I make a few posts, you know, thinking <laughs> everything's make it. And, and, and the next thing I knew, I'm with my son and I'm like, I'm back in jail. I'm like, I don't know what I said. I don't know. What I said. And he's like, well, did you? I'm like, I don't know. And, and it turns out, I didn't even think about it. This is, they're so on me. There, there's this, somebody posted a video of this poor kid in a cul-de-sac getting a, just an earful from a racist neighbor. And, and his dad comes out to get his kid. And this racist neighbor is just ranting on this black man. And this black man looks pretty yoked. And the, the white guy wants to fight him the whole time. He's like, come on, come on. And the black dude's like, no, no, no. And I think I said something like, I would have whacked the guy. I mean, I was, that's what I posted. I'd have whacked the guy. Right. <laughs> Boom. In jail. Days, right away. I'm like, oh, in jail. I got to stop with this. I got to stop with this. I got to stop with that. So next time you guys fire questions, though. I like questions. Questions are cool. So just write questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this is us signing off and with the guarantee that there will be a part two. And uh, Nat and I dumbstruck. will not sit so, uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, dumbstruck, starstruck, uh, dumbfounded, uh, whatever, fill in the gap on whatever it was. I mean, I, I not a single moment man, felt like yeah, I needed I felt to add way, anything man. to that conversation. It was just mind blowing. Right. And I cannot wait for people to hear this one. This is going to be, this is going to be awesome. So uh, again, uh, thank you. And I am looking forward to part two. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.